So hello everyone and welcome to the NP studio. Today we have with us um, a really special guest. Um, I've had some great conversations with him before and I'm so glad that you all will get to hear um, the words of wisdom that he has to offer. So today we have with us in the studio, um, Dr. Rajesh Parikh. He's the engineering director at Google, where he leads a talented team responsible for the quality of Google's geospatial data. His team applies various machine learning and computer vision techniques to build trustworthy and useful understanding of the real world. And he's passionate about solving challenging problems that deliver tremendous user impact. Now, prior to Google, Dr. Parikh has led analytics for Facebook's video and applied machine learning initiatives. And before Facebook, he was also the vice president of the data science uh, group at Groupon, uh, where he built products for personalization, sales automation, and marketing optimization. He's also worked at Yahoo Labs, building display advertising targeting products, at Blue Martini Software, developing data mining products for e-commerce, and at Allstate, solving insurance problems like cross-sell retention and fraud. He's earned his Bachelor's of Engineering in Computer Engineering from BJTI Mumbai and his MS and PhD in Computer Science, focusing on AI um, from the Iowa State University. He has published over 30 research papers and multiple international patents, and he actively participates in the machine learning and data science community. So with a wealth of experiences, uh, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Rajesh, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, Naman, thank you so much for inviting me. It is absolutely a pleasure to be on the NP Studio podcast. Sure, sure. Thank you so much, Rajesh Shankar. And um, I think the first, just to kick off the conversation, it'll be great to talk about um, the Geo team at Google and everything about geospatial data, because including myself, I think not a lot of people know what that entails. And if you could just throw some light on that and um, maybe your association with that, that'll be great. Absolutely. Um, so... The Geo team at Google focuses on various geo applications. Uh, Google Maps, perhaps, is the most well-known of those applications. Google Maps is a beloved product used by a billion-plus people over the world on a regular basis. Right. And Google Maps offers users a lot of functionality, right? The, uh, the, the ability to navigate from one place to another, the ability to search up information about places that we want to visit or local businesses that uh, we may want to do business with. Um, and specifically within GEO, I am responsible for maintaining the data quality of GEO's core data. And what this means is essentially the data quality of the entire road network information, as well as the local business information. Mm -hmm. The road network includes things like the road geometry, all of the road signs, uh, information about the intersections, whether these are controlled by stop signs, yield signs, or traffic signals, etc. And then this data is used by a variety of downstream clients. So clearly, our navigation team uses this data to help route uh, users from place A to place B. And then our local search team uses this data to uh, help users find relevant businesses or places that they may be interested in. Wow. 
um that's that's pretty interesting and and clearly there's there's a whole host of applications that goes with it um and and what you're doing is sort of like building the core framework that is then used and applied in different contexts for different applications that's amazing um and since you know um there's a big emphasis on artificial intelligence in your personal journey and in the work that you do um like i, I was really interested in knowing how how does ML play into like geo or, or like the geospatial framework as, as an industry and as a whole, like how does machine learning fit in that whole scope and uh, maybe uh, like what kind of work do you do in that field? Because that's super interesting for everyone who don't know uh, what machine learning and or geospatial data is. Within the geodata world, Naman, our goal is to build a trustworthy and useful understanding of the real world around us. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, information about the real world um, is quite expansive, right? I mean, we are talking about, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of local businesses all over the world. We are talking about, uh, you know, the entire road networks of uh, different countries. Mm -hmm. And so in order for us to get all of this information and then present it to the users, in a fresh and accurate manner, uh, machine learning and computer vision have been two of our workhorses. Uh, In general, machine learning algorithms have been used for inference of the various features that we are interested in. And so Mm -hmm. if we have information about, let's say a particular business and Uh, we would like to find out, you know, what is the category of that business? Is this like a coffee shop? Is this um, a restaurant, uh, you know, Thai restaurant, etc.? We use a variety of uh, signals that may be available, things that may be available on the web. For instance, the business may have a web page. The users may provide us with some information. And machine learning algorithms are used to basically make inferences about these features. Similarly, we also leverage uh, a lot of imagery that is available to us. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, uh, you know, there is satellite imagery that is available from a variety of providers around the world. And we train large scale computer vision algorithms to analyze that satellite imagery and infer things like road networks, right? So, uh, you know, looking at the satellite imagery, we identify where are the roads, what is the road geometry, etc. And so wow. this is how uh, we are leveraging some of the latest advances in the field of machine learning uh, to basically keep our data fresh and accurate. Wow. Um, and yeah, that's it. Like it's so interesting to know that any any emerging technology has um, like widespread applications uh, in the future, and and the the impact would usually exponentiate, and that's what we've seen with most of these technologies. That when they when they sort of at the onset, they're you know uh, they have this nascency associated with them, and then they sort of like boom into something, they peak, and then they plateau. Um, and but but that's that's pretty interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now I want to do a little bit of a time run here. So um, because you know talking about your journey, and you told me before, I think in an earlier conversation that we had, that um, you know you had um, obviously gone in you know doing computer science, uh, but then your your 
passion or fascination for AI and ML sort of got sparked from that one class that you took in college. And um, the entire point here is that, you know, um, like kids, including myself, sometimes uh, we feel that, you know, going into college that we have committed to a discipline and that um, like sometimes I think about myself that, okay, uh, while there is the flexibility for me to change that in a, in, in like the education that I received, um, I'm sometimes hesitant of doing that. Uh, but I think you did that very successfully. And, you know, coincidentally, the field also ended up booming to what it is right now. If you could just throw some light on that experience and what that entailed at that point of time and now for you. Certainly. So, um, you know, my journey started in India. I got my undergraduate education in India, as you mentioned uh, in the introduction. I completed my bachelor's in engineering from VJTI Mumbai, and I came to the United States for my graduate studies. Mm -hmm. And I was very specifically interested in high-performance computing. And one of the reasons I chose to come to Iowa State University uh, was that Iowa State University uh, had Ames Labs, uh, which was very well known for uh, the high-performance computing research that was going on uh, at that time. And, uh, you know, that was my primary interest. It so happened that in my very first semester in the master's program, I took an AI course and just absolutely fell in love with it. Um, you know, I was so fascinated by the possibilities that artificial intelligence uh, offers that, I actually decided to change my specialization. I still stayed in computer science, of course, but instead of uh, doing my research in high-performance computing, I uh, started doing my research in artificial intelligence. And the time when I was in graduate school, Naman, I will say that AI and machine learning were a lot more uh, academic disciplines mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that it wasn't really clear, uh, you know, what are some of the industry applications of AI and machine learning. Uh, but all in all, uh, you know, the multiple courses that I ended up taking, both in artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, prepared me for um, sudden changes that happened in the industry at around the same time. Correct. With the internet booming, uh, you know, there was a, a lot of interesting applications of AI and machine learning that spawned mm -hmm. uh, in a, a variety of these internet companies, uh, you know, Yahoo uh, being one of them that I had the opportunity to work at, uh, but many others as well. And so that's how my career started. Uh, I will say, uh, a little bit serendipitously, uh, you know, I had not uh, envisioned that I would really like the field of AI so much. And then also, uh, you know, the commercial applications of AI were clearly not as well known or even as well understood at that time. But uh, things worked out over time. Oh yeah, no, um, that's that's great. Uh, actually, I myself, um, I'm like I'm finding myself in that same uh, arc at this point because uh, other than obviously um, the the current prevalence of AI and ML, there's like a particular field that I'm really really interested in, which sort of lies in that same nascent stage that I think AIML was like a few years slash decades ago. Um, so I think the field of quantum computing is something that I'm really interested in. But that is not the only technology. There's so many other technologies that always keep coming up 
um, whether that's cryptocurrency or there's quantum computing or there's the entire field of the metaverse and the AR and VR vision. Um, but um, so you feel, and I just wanted to echo that or, or like have that somehow documented in the sense that if we have a core understanding of what technology entails and a core understanding of what the larger field entails, do you feel that it's easier to transfer our skills, even technically so, between different like technologies? Or do you think that um, they all require a certain degree of depth from the onset for us to be able to fully understand what they, you know, what they involve as, as, as a field in itself? That is a wonderful question, uh, Naman. I'll say the answer lies somewhere in between. And one of the things that I say to a lot of students who reach out to me is make sure that you spend a lot of time mastering the fundamentals, uh, you know, whether you are in computer engineering or computer science or any other field uh, for that matter, uh, make sure that you spend time mastering the fundamentals. Uh, technology is evolving at a very rapid pace. Uh, mm -hmm. You've already listed so many interesting fields that are at the cusp of a substantial boom, right, in the next, uh, you know, few years, maybe right. decades. And what we need to do is make sure that, A, you know, we have strong fundamentals that allow us to understand, um, you know, what the technology entails, mm -hmm. B, the discipline to look into a new technology understand it carefully and then decide, you know, where, where are the open problems or what are the open problems Correct. that uh, you are interested in solving. Mm -hmm. But in some sense, um, the foundational knowledge is definitely transferable, right? Once that is built, you mm -hmm. can certainly go from, uh, you know, one technology or one vertical to another a lot easier, I would say. Uh, yeah. In any given field, of course, you have to spend the time to understand that field and uh, you know understand the nuances of uh, that field, uh, but it becomes a lot easier when the foundations are strong. Yeah, so I think a, a really important point brought about the uh, I uh, I had the pleasure of sort of you know working on some data science projects myself, including at a few companies as well um, in my computer science journey. So I was wondering how um, like a how did that sort of like journey for you? you know, ended up starting? Um, and where do you see this field sort of booming in the next five, 10 years? Because it's still, I mean, uh, it is really popular, um, but there's so many applications and, and great potential for this field as well. So where do you see this field going? And and obviously, where, where did it start for you? Yeah, the, the field of data science is um, a very interesting field. Also, I will say that a lot of these areas of disciplines are uh, intersecting or overlapping in some sense. Uh, for me personally, Naman, the journey started uh, way back in graduate school, right? As we were thinking about, uh, or as we were doing research in machine learning, uh, specifically artificial neural networks, one of the things that uh, my advisor and my teachers Correct. taught me is to make sure that we are spending the time understanding the data mm -hmm. uh, very carefully before throwing it over to the model. Uh, because there is no substitute for um, you know, understanding the data and the age old adage of garbage in, garbage out holds. Uh, you know, if we just throw the kitchen sink at the model, it might give us something, but we don't really know what the model has learned. 
And it was then that I built out the discipline of uh, truly understanding the data before jumping into the modeling stage. Uh, I was fortunate enough uh, to have taken a few courses in statistics where I really understood better, um, you know, the concepts of online experimentation, hypothesis testing, etc. And then as I transitioned into the industry, I realized that even for a lot of the machine learning applications that I was doing, it was very important uh, to analyze the data, understand the wow. data, and then decide how best we are going to solve uh, specific problems. In some cases, Naman, the data science aspect or the data analytics aspect enabled us to solve Great. problems quite effectively using even simple heuristics. We did not even have to build, uh, you know, in-depth models. Wow. Uh, of course, you know, Great. as you pick up the low-hanging fruit and then you're trying to optimize further, uh, that is where a lot of the advanced machine learning capabilities do come into play. But these fields are definitely related. And I feel that I have benefited uh, from, you know, knowing both of them quite a bit. Uh, again, going forward, I think clearly in terms of data science and analytics, uh, that skill is going to be extremely vital. The Correct. ability to understand the data, to figure out the nuances of the data, to also um, you know, understand whether or not the models that we have built are um, giving us sensible responses, whether they are mm -hmm. truly representative or we are missing something, uh, it, it is helpful to understand that. And data science as a field gives us that opportunity. The one other thing that I will say is, uh -huh. I am very fascinated by solving interesting and challenging business problems. And whenever we see a business problem, uh, it is important for us to try and understand um, you know, what do the numbers tell us? I will give you uh, a simple example. Uh, this is going way back, um, you know, several years, uh, my days at Groupon. We mm -hmm. were looking at the conversion of people who visited the website right. and who ended up signing on. And just building a simple funnel. Wow identified two or three very significant optimization opportunities. So if a person was not already signed on, or if a person, sorry, if a person did not already have an account, correct, wow. uh, we were asking that person to click one more time to create an account. Um, that insight enabled us to change the UI so that if you have an account, you enter your login and password. If you don't have an account, you can sign up right then and there. That increased the conversion rate quite dramatically. Now, in hindsight, this is a very simple insight. But that simple insight, uh, you know, at the international scale uh, where Groupon was at that time, uh, really translated into a lot of efficiency. Uh, and there are multiple examples like that. So uh, that is the one thing uh, that I would like right. to stress. Um, to the extent possible, uh, always make sure that you are thinking about the data first, uh, you know, before building the models, even after building the models, correct? Um, looking at the outputs, uh, computing the trends. 
because a lot of times we have these models that may be in production. Uh, over a period of time, their performance may degrade. And if we are not monitoring them carefully, if we are not uh, thinking about, you know, what is the model actually doing, uh, it may take much longer before we realize that there is a potential issue with oh. the model. No, that's um, that's all fascinating, except uh, <clears throat> especially the example that you shared um, about Groupon and, you know, how a small change locally uh, with the intent, obviously, of, um, you know, increasing the user base and increasing or enhancing the experience for them can have a tremendous impact internationally, uh, which could be said, you know, for all the companies out there that are trying to, you know, maximize uh, their output and their connection with the users for the betterment of the users. Um, so, yeah, some some really good takeaways from that. I do wanted to transition to your experience um, at Facebook into a particular experience within that when you were working in at the intersection of machine learning and data science, so as to say, and also because, you know, you threw light on their marriage. Um, you did something really interesting with the the, the Facebook's K to twelve education initiative, and um, uh, you know I think everyone will be more than happy to hear about that and about like your experience undergoing you know that entire journey um, of of education and machine learning and data science in the entire field. And obviously, you know, I I would just like to preface that with how important like what you did before is in in such times you know when the pandemic is going on and um there's a lot of online learning options that are now available because of the pandemic but you guys did something like like a great job before the pandemic and yeah now we can uh, transition to that yeah thank you for the question uh naman so um I had the opportunity to work on the K-12 education platform that Facebook was building. Uh, I provided, again, my data science and analytics expertise, but I worked very closely with the engineering and the product leadership that was building out the platform. Uh, just a little bit of context uh, for your listeners. So Facebook had actually partnered with Summit Public Schools or Summit Charter Schools. Uh, this is a charter school system based in California. I believe they also have some schools now in the state of Washington. Uh, this is a very interesting um, approach uh, to charter schools where, A, uh, you know, all of the education is based off the Summit Learning Platform, right? And so very early on, uh, the uh, Summit Charter School system decided that they are going to develop an online learning platform. Summit Charter Schools issues... Uh, a Chromebook to each and every student uh, right uh, on the day they join. And the entire curriculum can be managed by the student and their teachers uh, online. Of course, there is you know, classroom teaching and other things that goes on, but uh, there is a lot more focus on the online component. Uh, there are a lot of benefits to this. Uh, essentially, it enables uh, educators, so teachers and um, other administrators to truly understand the strengths and development opportunities for each student and then even personalize the curriculum or the testing according to the student's ability. Now, we did not know it at that time, but, you know, fast forward a few years, right, when the pandemic hit, uh, Summit Public Schools was able to transition from an online school to, uh, sorry, from a, an in-person school to completely online education in a matter of a day, 
right? And I remember that personally because my daughter attends uh, one of the summit charter schools. And it was a Friday when the school decided that uh, they are not going to have any more in-person classes because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this happened across the board, right? With all of the public schools uh, as well. And then on Monday, uh, you know, my daughter's school was up and running. And I did hear that several other schools took, uh, you know, two to three weeks before they could figure out uh, the online learning aspect. So it was uh, quite fortuitous that Summit had already thought about this online education program. Wow. Um, no, no, that's, that's great. Especially the fact that, um, you know, with any new technology, um, there's so many variables unaccounted for in the equation, for instance, like with what you just described. And then, um, you know, we can't preempt every single thing that's going to happen in the future. But what we can do is is optimize our preparation so that when something like this happens or, or when something like that has happened in the in the past, we can learn from that and grow. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that that's a constant process. Um, and I'm glad to see like, you know, real manifestation of that in the example that you just shared and the work that you did with that. So thank you so much for sharing light or sharing some light on that. Um, also briefly, you know, really interestingly, you also tend to, you know, work as an advisor at Tube. At so there's Liga data and or Liga data, right? And then there's the Hive. Um, and so I just wanted to know um, how, like, because you're doing that currently, um, what is your role in those companies maybe as an advisor? Um, yeah, that, that'd be great um, for us to, to know more about. So as I was saying, um, Liga Data provides data services and products that are tailored for mobile operators around the world. It enables them to do network optimization. Uh, it enables them to do uh, you know, customer relationship management and other things. Mm -hmm. I uh, am called upon occasionally to provide uh, both strategic as well as technical guidance, uh, right? If there are, um, you know, strategic questions about, uh, you know, using machine learning or other approaches, if there are, um, you know, strategic questions about the uh, different approaches uh, to doing network optimization, et cetera, uh, I uh, help out uh, by uh, providing my thoughts and my perspectives. Um, similarly, the Hive is an incubator uh, for startup companies. They have a very interesting portfolio. Uh, they have focused a lot on um, you know various applications of AI, uh, you know, including uh, in IoT and other spaces uh, that are interesting. And uh, again, just like Lega Data. I provide uh, technical guidance uh, as needed and, uh, you know, strategic mentorship to uh, both the, the founders of Hive as well as occasionally uh, to the portfolio companies. Correct. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that as well. That's, um, that's really interesting that, you know, you're also working on that um, and, uh, you know, um, helping out people there too. So that's, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, now, something really interesting that came across from your journey is the fact that, you know, I've worked in different industries with different products, um, different verticals per se, you know, uh, in the insurance field, in, in the e-commerce space, you know, in the automation space. 
um, with, with the education initiatives, right? And then now also with the geospatial data. Um, so we, we've talked about the technical aspects where you said that it's important to have a strong fundamentals so that the fluidity with which you can transition across different fields and different industries, um, it, you know, increases. But at the same time, there's the soft skills, right? Where there's the teamwork that goes in, there's the collaboration and the, you know, and, and the confidence and the competence. And so how, like, what what degree of importance would you stress on these fields? Uh, or not fields per se, but these skills um, and maybe their relevance or, or like how would they augment your technical skills when you transition across industries? That's a wonderful question, Naman. And this is one of the things that I would certainly emphasize um, you know, when a lot of us coming out of um, engineering schools uh, have in-depth technical education, as you come into the industry, and especially now right. when we are dealing with some of the most interesting and challenging problems that are interdisciplinary in nature, right. and some of the biggest problems ahead of us are, let's say, in the environment, uh, solving environmental problems, uh, the energy space, uh, education is something that you have brought up as well, also healthcare. Uh, in all of these spaces, it is important to recognize that no individual can really drive a whole lot of progress as an island. You are almost always working with other people, people with different backgrounds, uh, people with different skill sets. So your soft skills, the ability to communicate uh, your ideas, the ability to collaborate across people with very different uh, backgrounds, and the ability to negotiate become extremely crucial. And this may not be something that is as much emphasized in schools, uh, you know, undergraduate as well as graduate education. But over the years, my experience has taught me that this is one of the areas that uh, successful people focus on quite extensively, right? And if you are good at the soft skills, of course, you need to be strong in your technical domain as well. But if you're good at your soft skills, you will be able to drive much greater impact. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's very true, and and I think um, would like to echo the fact that you said that all successful people, uh, you know, the founders in this space as well, because we share that passion, um, have have all shown to be tremendously, you know, good team workers, uh, because you know when you're scaling up a product, you're also scaling up a team, and so internally, you know, you have to um, take care of all those management heuristics, and also that you have to, you know, sort of have that passion transcend just your boundaries and, and reach out to the team who dreams with the same passion and works with the same passion. Um, and I think that's the reason why so many of these companies have become so successful is not only because their products are so nice, but it's also because the team carries that passion forward with every new candidate that they hire. Um, so yeah, that's um, really nice and something to definitely keep in mind when uh, you know, forwarding your own or furthering your own journey in this field or in any other field because it, it translates obviously to the arts and the humanities and every other field too. Um, something also really interesting, you know, before we end today's conversation is uh, the fact that you've also, you know, dipped your feet in the research community and, you know, as I said in the introduction, you're a publisher with 30 research papers and multiple international patents. Now, just, um, you know, would love to know sort of like a like a high level overview of the process that goes into let's say writing a research paper right or, or 
you know, patenting something because a lot of people are interested in it. A lot of people have the skills for it, but not necessarily are aware of what exactly are, are like some of the good steps to follow or some tips to keep in mind while, you know, either writing a research paper or either patenting some of their own inventions or products. So that'd be great to, um, you know, know I'll be happy to share my thoughts. I will say that writing a research paper um, depends on whether or not you are more in an academic setting or a research lab setting versus an industry setting. In both places, uh, you know, there is clearly the opportunity to publish a research paper. As a graduate student earlier on in my career, I used to focus a lot more on academic research mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, publications were uh, really considered as important uh, during my grad school. Um, and the way we used to focus on the research is, of course, you know, I used to work closely with my advisor and uh, depending on the work that we have done, uh, we would primarily look for some of the elite um, conferences where we want to publish the work. Uh, and, you know, once the work is published in the conference over a period of time, uh, that work can be augmented and further developed. And when the body of research is very substantial, uh, then it potentially becomes a journal publication as well. Now, all of these were, of course, peer reviewed. Uh, and so we had to submit it uh, to the journal. And, um, you know, if it is accepted, then it gets published uh, in that journal or that conference. Uh, over the years, as I started working in the industry, the focus of my research publications changed a lot to uh, providing a lot of best practices. Um, and, and the way we do this is, of course, you know, if we have implemented something interesting, um, let's say when I was at Yahoo Labs, uh, we developed a variety of new algorithms, uh, correct? And these were groundbreaking uh, at that time. And so the first thing we did was to speak with our patent attorneys and see if this is patentable. Um, you know, similar to a research paper, but, um, you know, slightly shorter version of the write-up. Uh, and we worked with the patent attorneys to file uh, the patent. The insights that came out of a lot of this work was then encapsulated in best practices that uh, we submitted to some of the conferences and journals. And so you will see some of my later papers uh, focus a little bit more on, uh, you know, the best practices and insights. Uh, I will say that in the industry setting, uh, it is a little bit harder uh, to publish, not, not impossible, but it is a little bit harder because very often you may be dealing with, uh, you know, proprietary algorithms or proprietary data, etc. And research or published research by definition really needs to be open. It needs to be repeatable. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, it takes time to, let's say, take an algorithm that you have developed, uh, work with that algorithm on a public domain data set, uh, prove it out so that it is ready for publication because, you know, the work that you are doing for a particular company uh, may not be easily publishable. Uh, so that, in general, is the process. Now, I will say that I have a lot of uh, friends and colleagues who work in research lab environments and, you know, they 
focus a lot more on developing new technologies, developing new algorithms, and uh, you know they are a lot more active in the academia and hence uh, you know publish papers, even though they may not be. Uh, in a particular university, let's say they are working in a research lab or something, they are still publishing quite extensively. So I hope this is helpful for your audience. Yeah, yeah no, definitely is. Um, and I think a lot of new new points even for me to learn from this. Um, and, and and especially the fact that, you know, there's, there's research papers and patents out there. And then sometimes, uh, you know, they interlace and sometimes there's a line between them um, and also like where they apply and where they don't and the, sort of the general steps that one might follow to do that, um, which sort of would, would form the perfect preface um, for us to conclude this conversation um, because there's a lot of students right now, not only in the computer science field, right, but in their respective uh, field of passion um, that let's say they pursue an undergraduate degree right after high school and then they are you know they have qualms about you know furthering that with a master's and or a phd a postdoc and then the list goes on um or or if they're in the arts field you know they they sometimes even debate going to college and so in general people who are confused about what what set academic path there is to take for their field which might not have um, like a very sort of concrete uh, step A to B to C uh, to reach somewhere. Um, what is your advice slash guidance to to the younger generation then in that regard? Because you've gone through maybe all of those stages for you to have an idea of what each of those stages entail. Um, I think that'll be great to, you know, sort of like close the loop on the conversation. Sure. I will start out by saying that I am really impressed with uh, the young students uh, and, uh, you know, very young um, uh, professionals who have started, let's say, their industry careers. Um, the passion that they bring to the table, uh, you know, the ability to take risks and the can-do attitude and mindset uh, is extremely uh, impressive. And... A couple of pieces of guidance, if I may, uh, you know, number one, I will say, uh, I'm, I'm just going to repeat what I said earlier, make sure that, uh, you know, you pick one area and you master the fundamentals um, because the foundation is crucial. Uh, the applications can change over time, but building the right foundation is crucial. Uh, secondly, I would say, uh, you know, please make sure that you are really thinking about what interests you, correct? Now, on a day-to-day -day basis, there are going to be ups and downs. But, uh, you know, on balance, if uh, you feel passionate about an area, you will be a lot more likely, uh, you know, to deliver uh, outsized impact, right? So, you know, making sure that you understand the area, you're passionate about that area, uh, you should be delivering that impact. Uh, the third thing that I will say is uh, continue to focus on your collaboration and communication skills, no matter which field or which discipline you are in. It is extremely important to communicate your ideas very well, to collaborate as well as possible with other people. In fact, these days, Naman, I'm seeing a lot of students engaging in you know, either dual majors in their undergraduate program or doing minors. Uh, and I see the prevalence increase quite a bit compared to the time when I was in school. And that is a fascinating thing because the problems that we are faced with um, 
you know, do require us to be multidisciplinary in some sense and think broadly about the problem from different angles. So, uh, you know, developing these skills uh, will be extremely beneficial. Yeah, those takeaways are amazing. Thank you so much. Um, and they're really specific or specific enough for, you know, people to follow in their own pursuit um, of either their personal journey or even as part of a larger setting. Um, this also reminds me, actually, uh, and would be a perfect way to you know, end the loop on this conversation, uh, a TED talk that I heard recently by uh, this lady, her name's Amelia Wapnick, Wapnick where she says um, that humans are inherently something called multi-potentialites, wherein we are in, our innate passions uh, sort of lead us to solving complex problems, multi-dimensional problems, problems that um, you know, involve connecting two dots that seem unrelated, but when you connect them, they, they relate a lot and are instrumental in solving a problem. And these refer to different industries, fields, skills, different people. And so I think what you said um, in the educational curriculum and even probably sort of extrapolating that, um, if we can find a way to connect these dots and, you know, as they say, the dots only connect looking backwards, um, you know, our, our being a multi-potentialite can truly become sort of an identity, uh, you know, characteristic of each of us and um, is also what ends up defining a lot of these people that end up becoming very successful. Um, but yeah, I think with that note, thank you so much for taking out the time to do this, Rajesh. It was a pleasure to have you on um, and you guys stay tuned for the next episode of the NP Studio podcast.